prettiest place in Washington, D.C. that I know of. I must say, I know quite a lot of people underground here. Rather cozy. George McGovern tells me he's going to be over there, I think, somewhere with his family. Alice Roosevelt Longworth is nearby, but I've forgotten where she is. And my old friend Jimmy Trimble is back that way. When I first came here, with us was a biographer of mine who was famous for getting everything wrong. I thought it would be a good way to start him on the biography, to show him my tomb, to give him confidence. He begins with this desperate passage about Gore Vidal, who has a pathological hatred of death. Well, anybody who has that doesn't take somebody to see his tomb. With that one mistake, he was off and running, as they say. Gore Vidal has been a thorn in the American establishment, of which he is, by birth at any rate, a charter member. Gore Vidal has seemed to have always had his finger in the pulse of American politics. He has boasted John F. Kennedy and Eleanor Roosevelt amongst his best friends. Vidal, as you probably know, has written some 22 novels along with plays, movies, and essays. He's perhaps best known for a series of historical novels about America. And his lifelong obsession is with the enthralling decadence of American political life. Well, Gore Vidal is the real most interesting man in the world. Gore seems to have been everywhere at once, all the time. He's a shape-shifting character. He comes up out of a different hole every time. You never know where he's going to pop his head up. I am a happy warrior. I'm in battle. I'm enjoying it. The whole point to a ruling class is they don't conspire, the rulers. They all think alike. Unless you get out of it, as I did, and I defected, and I was rather worried about what was happening to what I think of as my country. The day of reckoning is now. And at such a time, faced with the possibility of our own cowardice, a writer of constant courage is a great, great blessing. People say that a writer sees the future. He says, that's not true. He says, a writer doesn't see the future. A writer sees the present. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Gore Vidal. In every generation, there are a few unfortunate souls who are condemned, practically at birth, to be that absolute absurdity, a writer for life. When I think about Gore, I see this baby born in 1925, the Roaring Twenties, and born into a very privileged household. His father was Eugene Luther Vidal, director of air commerce under Roosevelt from 1933 to 1937, so already a powerful man on his father's side, a pioneer in the world of aviation. I think it'd be a good idea if we found out whether or not a 10-year-old youngster could handle it. What do you think? 
Sure, I'll try it. My father dreamed of being the Henry Ford of aviation, so he was forever coming up with prototypes of cheap airplanes that were absolutely safe. All right, let's get going. All right. So safe that even I, at the age of 10, could fly it. Well, how about it? It's easier than learning how to ride a bicycle. As a child, he knew Amelia Earhart, who was having an affair with his father. They were aviation buddies, really. He and my mother had long since parted. When Gore is st still in his teens, his mother remarries. She marries Hugh D. Auchincloss. Gore called him Hughie. Then, of course, Gore's mother divorced him. He remarried Aquilin Bouvier's mother. So there began the relationship between Gore and the Kennedy family. If you could change anything about your life, what would it be? My mother. <laughs> <laughs> Whose mother do you want? <laughs> I'll take Whistler's. I'll take anybody else. <laughs> Gore and his mother had a horrendous relationship, and she was nothing but trouble for him. Perhaps he was nothing but trouble for her. Severe alcoholic, emotionally unavailable. She was always up to something, and she hated witnesses. She knew that I was a sort of witness. Well, as soon as the child is old enough to begin to figure out what may be going on, I was already writing. I was trying to be a novelist even at 15 and 16. We had a final row in London, and uh, I said, I'll never see you again. And it was 20, 20 years later, she was dead, and I had not seen her during the interval. The most important person in Gore's life was his grandfather, and I think that's a uh, an ideal he's trying to live up to at times. The Gores of Donegal, 15 generations of Anglo-Irish uh, preachers and politicians. They were a well-read family and uh, allegedly very witty and sharp, which gave them an enormous advantage in the American South, where they did very well. They got elected to almost everything in sight. My grandfather is an extraordinary autodidact. They wanted to put him in a home for the blind. We had a little bit of money, and he said, well, I'll go to law school. And I said, how are you going to read? And he said, I'll take my cousin so-and-so with me, and he'll read to me. Seeing, after all, is a mere matter of habit. It doesn't require physical sight to discern the deplorable condition in which our people are laboring today. And you're brought up by a blind man who was accidentally blinded by the age of 10 and made his way in the world Self-pity is very hard to indulge in when you live with somebody like that. He changed his name from, you know, Eugene to Gore Vidal because he wanted to be a Gore. And, and being a Gore meant you got to go to the Senate with your grandfather and read to him. That allowed me to sit beside him. I was his page. And I just listened to the senators talk. He was not an enthusiast to the human race. I quite understand that. He used to say, if there was any race other than the human race, I would go join it. 
And quietly, he was reading all the atheist literature he could get his hands on. And I was given the same literary background that Mark Twain was given, like Brand the iconoclast and Ingersoll, who was one of the great free thinkers. And he said, I alone, of the members of this house, was here in 1917 when I warned against war. And I furthermore made the point that one more wartime adventure in Europe would destroy the American system. And every word he spoke was true. The last war cost 10 million lives. I was one of seven senators who opposed our entering the war. That cost me my seat in the Senate. But I tell you mothers now, as I told you then, that I will never rob your cradles to feed the dogs of war to feed the dogs of war. He died poor, the only senator from Oklahoma, an oil state, who had no money because he took no graft. So we were an uncorrupt family. He sent off at the beginning of the war to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. And here he suddenly comes into contact, I think for the first time, with other boys his own age. I was, I was proud of coming from Washington, because I knew that's where the power was. And everybody was fascinated if they could get you to talk about the president or whatever was interesting that day. And he becomes a kind of orator. He's a class politician, highly intelligent. I mean, almost insidiously intelligent. His wicked wit which would sustain him through his entire long life, was amply on display at Phillips Exeter. New England was just my cup of tea. There's no sort of great love affair in your life which has um, prompted you or...? Well, there was one very early, and uh, one, was, one was early enough. I don't think it happens twice. There are some people who I think are partial to the notion, particularly kids, of having a twin. And all that I was not, he was, and all that he was not, I was, and the two of us would have uh, been pretty good had we been rolled into one. Well, that was schoolboy stuff. In a boy's school, where such things happen. But that's long, long, long ago. He was killed at Iwo Jima, and his mother sent me a bunch of the letters he'd written her. And they are so bitter. I mean, here's Iwo Jima, the greatest moment of American heroism. Well, that's for the people back home, the people at Iwo Jima. It was a nightmare. It's the most bitter letter I've ever read, and this was a sunny, non-political athlete. He said, we will never be thanked for any of this. No one cares about what we're doing. His mother was a secretary to a congressman, so he knew how Washington worked. And he said, uh, all they remember is how much they made, how much money they made during the war. Fortunes were made just in a matter of weeks. He knew this at 18 and didn't make it to 19. You can persuade people that to go to war and fight for democracy 
and die, leaving a widow and orphan children behind, that this is serving the greater good. Well, it isn't. It's surrendering to everything evil in the society. But they've been persuaded, oh, it's a noble thing to give your life for your country. Fuck that. I spent three years in World War II, the good war. In three years in the Pacific, mostly north, but a little bit south, I never heard one patriotic word said by an American soldier about anything. I served as first mate of an army freight supply ship in the Aleutian Islands. He gets uh, crippling arthritis in his hands and his legs, and he's invalided out. While he's in the hospital during the war, he writes his first novel, which is really one of the most important World War II novels. All of my friends said, you're bound to fail. Sent it to a publisher, they published it, so I had a career. Well, the first book was called Willowa, which is an Indian word that means hurricane, sea story. And the book was published in March of 1946 and was very well received. He's only 19 years old. He writes this beautiful, tight, Hemingway-esque story, which is then reviewed in the New York Times by Orville Prescott, and he's acclaimed uh, the great young writer of his generation. It was a time of relative serenity looking back, but we had just got over the war. My generation had just come back from the army. We were writing our books, we were going to school, we were writing plays, and it was the time of Tennessee Williams emerging and Norman Mailer emerging. And it was a lovely time in the arts, and they, sort of the heat was off. Then he meets Tennessee Williams. After the war, Gore and Tennessee traveled across Europe. Tennessee Williams had a jeep, which he drove very badly. I'm practically blind in one eye, he'd say proudly, as we would end up, you know, driving along the sidewalks of Rome. But somehow we got here alive. And thus began Gore's long, decades-long attachment to Italy. I was supposed to go to Harvard. And I remember thinking all my friends from Exeter had gone to Harvard. And I'd been accepted. And then I thought, my God, I've been institutionalized all of my life. <laughs> I thought, oh, dear God, I'm not going to go in for that. So they said, how are you going to live? I said, well, I'm going you know, to write. No, <laughs> It was very clear. You don't decide to be a writer. You are one or you're not one. This drives people crazy because everybody thinks it's easy to just sit down and scribble. And that's it. Well, it isn't it. And you have to have a certain gift, which is not... Art is not a democracy. In fact, art is the enemy of democracy. When I was 22 years old, I wrote The City in the Pillar, and that was my first, as they say, international success. First American novel to depict homosexual sex explicitly. Friends had assured me that the notoriety of the city in the pillar would exclude me from serious attention. In the spring of 1948, the city in the pillar was a bestseller. Made Gore a lot of money, but he became notorious. And what happened was the New York Times refused to review 
book after book, and Gore was finding himself blocked out. He couldn't make money. Sex is politics, you know. I mean, it always has been used for that. Largely, it's used as a means of keeping people in line. The dream of every society is total control. We have all sorts of uh, fun and games approaches to sex. And homosexuality is just one of a number of such things, all tending towards the subversion of our values. Why not begin by saying that our basic values are all wrong? Breaking of the moral fiber of the country that these uh, commentators speak of is one of the healthiest things that's begun to happen. Dr. Kinsey's great gift to the world was uh, to tell us what people actually did sexually as opposed to what they were supposed to do. It is as natural to be homosexual as it is to be heterosexual. And the difference between a homosexual and a heterosexual is about the difference between somebody who has brown eyes and somebody who has blue eyes. Who says so? I say so. It is a completely natural act from the beginning of time. Dr. Kinsey wrote me a fan letter when The City and the Pillar came out, thanking me for my work in the field. And uh, I was very flattered. We have something that Andre Gide referred to as floating sensuality. We can be aroused by this, by that, not necessarily by men, not necessarily by women. So let us begin with the reality of human relations and not start talking about moral fiber because we're not living out this mad 19th century dream of that everybody, we must go in Noah's Ark in twos. My books were blacked out by the New York Times. The principal daily reviewer swore that he'd never read one, much less review one, after The City and the Pillar, of course. And he's true to his word, he didn't. So I had to make a living. So the golden age of television appears in 1954, right when Gore needs money, so he begins writing teleplays. And he sees himself as a warrior, trying to bring us back to our best selves. Tonight's play, A Sense of Justice by Gore Vidal. I think his plays, demonstrate, uh, like the best man, eternal truths. It's a wide open convention, anybody can win. The best man is a look into the back room to show how difficult it is to be a moral person when you're surrounded by immoral people. That power is not a toy that we give to good children. It's a weapon, and the strong man takes it and he uses it. And if you don't go down there and beat Joe Cantwell to the floor with this very dirty stick, then you've got no business in this big league. He could write a great script, and I don't know that he was fully appreciated by Hollywood. Now, the next and final guest is a man who said once, when they filmed the screenplay I wrote for Ben-Hur, I found to my astonishment that they had built everything as extravagantly as I had requested, including Charlton Heston. He got a job as a contract writer in the mid-50s for MGM. During this period, of course, he met Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, who became very close friends. Well, it was the beginning of Newman's career and the beginning of my career as a dramatist. And Newman and I went to Warner Brothers, and they were very reluctant to take it. It was the first sort of strange Western ever made. You sat up there in the rocks and you murdered him. Paul was cast in it as Billiam. And he was keeping company with Joanne Woodward, whom we later married. And we were great friends. For a period, they shared a little cottage right on the beach outside of Los Angeles. And we suddenly were the place to come. 
on Sunday. So there'd be a hundred strangers wandering around, and none of us could say, well, get out for fear it'd be the other person's friend. We had one long party, and everybody invited everybody. We had the most extraordinary people. Everybody who was anybody came because of Gore. Because Gore knew, even then, knew everybody. At Falcon, I used to see he saw two adaptations I'd made of his short stories. He said, you must be very careful about Hollywood. Some people make the mistake of taking it seriously, don't. I saw Scott Fitzgerald ruin himself. He took movies seriously and Faulkner would laugh and imagine. It's not serious at all. It's not writing. If you need the money, go and do it. I did. I set myself a plan that in 10 years, I would have enough money so I would never have to do anything I didn't want to do again. In the 50s, Gore lived in that beautiful house, Edgewater, on the Hudson River. My television work paid for the house some $16,000. That was a lovely period in Gore's life. It is wonderful to find the person in your life who fulfills that which you need. For Howard and Gore, that is what happened. But what does one say of a private relationship? Howard and Gore met when they were very young. They entertained grandly, and they had a lively circle of people around them. That was the hangout. It was wonderful. Gore's happiest nights were spent listening to Howard sing and Howard would sing old Sinatra tunes, jazz songs. Howard just sort of ran the house and ran the business and ran the arrangements and travel plans and everything. And Howard was really the people person. And he'd, you know, give Gore a good shake sometimes. Gore didn't want to do this, that, or the other thing. And, and they lived together for decades. Kennedy ran for president in 1960. I also ran for the House of Representatives at the same time. And I suppose I was more innocent about the political system. I thought it made some difference who the president was. Do you want to be to reach the highest political office in your land? Yes and no. It was, my, it was the family trade. I come from a long line of politicians. My grandfather was nearly the president and it was sort of unfinished business in the family. Back in 1960, he ran for Congress in upstate New York, Dutchess County. I ran really because of, of Jack Kennedy, who was running for president, so I ran for the House, and we thought we would make a difference. Can you imagine how naive we were? Eleanor Roosevelt was living just down the road. She campaigned for me when I ran for the House in 1960 you know, did better than most Democrats have ever done in that very Republican district. Did Jack Kennedy encourage you to pursue politics? Well, he was fascinated by my ability to get votes. He said, you won't like uh, the House of Representatives. It, it's a can of worms. Stay away from it. He was really the most enjoyable company on earth mm -hmm. and uh, terribly funny. I took Tennessee over there one day and 
Jack was putting up targets. And he'd got out guns. And we were going to do some target practice. <laughs> Jack begins, and he goes, bang, bang. He looked wonderful doing it, but, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't really hit the target. And Jack says, well, uh, Tennessee, don't you want to try this target right here? <laughs> Tennessee, yes, well, you know, I'm uh, totally blind in my left eye, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't mind giving it a try. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. He hit every target. <laughs> and yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. He got elected, I didn't get elected. Watching the disaster of his administration and I was very fond of him, and still am fond of the memory of the man, but in 1,000 days, he invades Cuba unsuccessfully, and then ends by heating up the war in Vietnam. And we was put this on President Kennedy's head. He got us into it in October 63, when he changed the 600 advisors we had there to 20,000 committed troops, and is now part of the Kennedy legend that had he lived, this war would not have taken place, or it would not have pursued, it would not have escalated. I can promise you as much as you can guess anything, I mean, of a speculative nature, that he would have been as deeply in it as Johnson. With the Kennedy in the summer of 63, had lost the students in America. Yeah. He had lost the liberals. He was under tremendous pressure on all directions. He had done practically nothing as president of the United States, except maintain his image, he made some marvelous speeches of an analytical nature. There was no subject that at one time or another he did not say the wisest thing about. And no action ever followed any speech. The thing about myths and legends, should we allow reality to intrude? The Kennedy legend is a very good one for the world and it's a very good one for the United States. And as a critic, I'm sort of split because on the one hand, I know it's not true. And on the other hand, I think, well, it, if it's not true, it ought to be true. I liked him tremendously, and I hang his picture in my library, not as an icon, not as a memory of Camelot, not as a memory of glorious nights at the White House or in Bel Air, but never again to be taken in by anybody's charm. And he was one of the most charming men I've ever known, one of the most intelligent, and one of the most disastrous presidents I think we've ever had. Civil rights leader Martin Luther King leads the procession to the United Nations where he urges UN pressure to force the US to stop bombing North Vietnam. Watching this conflict, one saw that it was a cultural war has now joined the race war in the United States and a generation war. That there was such malevolence of these elderly politicians toward the young, toward the idealists, toward anybody who wanted to change anything. And that was when I realized that the country is still less civil than one had thought. Uh, I would say that uh, the current commitment uh, to political action throughout the United States is the most hopeful thing that I've seen in my lifetime. And it was begun partly by the race situation in America and has now come to a head with the Vietnamese War and the slow recognition that the United States has become an empire of the most predatory kind. 
This has energized, radicalized many of the young in the United States, and uh, I see those as good roles to play. Gore probably came to the to, to largest prominence. His biggest audience was really when he debated William F. Buckley uh, during the 1968 presidential conventions in Miami and Chicago. I don't think it's right to present Mr. Gore Vidal as a political commentator of any consequence since he is nothing more than, uh, than a literary producer of, uh, of, of a perverted uh, Hollywood-minded prose. Well, as usual, Mr. Buckley, uh, with his enormous and thrilling charm, uh, manages to get away from the issue toward the comedy. He's always to the right, I think, and almost always in the wrong. And you certainly must, uh, Bill, maintain your reputation as being the Marie Antoinette to the right wing and continually imposing your own rather bloodthirsty neuroses on a political campaign. They liked nothing better than taking off the gloves and smacking each other on stage. So it was huge television. We would like to call on our guest controversialists. That's a term the BBC in London invented, and it's good. We have a 75 billion military budget. We have a $2 billion for poverty. And Mr. Nixon tells us it is a cruel delusion, unquote, he says, to tell the Negroes that they can expect anything at all out of the budget this year. The principal reason for the discontent of our time is because you have been encouraged by a demagogy of the left to believe that the federal government is going to take care of your life for you. Well, what can I say? Not you've you've been given that ghastly position once again. Yeah of the well-to-do and those who inherit money and believe that others must somehow achieve equality. But in actual fact, you're going to have a revolution if you don't give the people the things they want. Now, I'm putting it to your own self-interest. They're going to come and take it away from you. Buckley was an admirable opponent for Gore. They were both quick-witted, both aristocratic. Buckley was a guy who made a claim to great knowledge and style and sophistication. Gore was a great foil for him. I think it drove Buckley a bit nuts, and I think it drove Gore a bit nuts. Does it appeal to you that uh, in the United States, 5% of the population have 20% of the income, and the bottom 20% have 5% of the income? I think this is... This awesome. seems to me, I know that you, you revel in no, a kind of inequality. No. I think it's sort of because business I, is based upon you it. You see, I believe that freedom breeds inequality. Uh, and that, say uh, that again. Uh, uh, freedom breeds inequality. Now, I'll say that uh, a third time. No, twice yeah, is no, enough. Uh, unless, I think you unless, made your point. Unless yes. you have freedom to be unequal, there is no such thing as freedom. And Gore was at the right place at the right time. I mean, suddenly history was coming to a perilous moment. People were screaming in the streets. There was fighting in the streets of Chicago. This uh, scene, these scenes were filmed about an hour and a half earlier, and, and even they can't quite illustrate just exactly what happened out there tonight. For tonight in front of the Hilton Hotel, thousands of Americans, both young and old, witnessed an explosion of raw, brutal, sadistic police force, which marks one of the darkest hours of any police department anywhere in this country. After those last pictures, I would like now to turn to our two guest commentators and to ask them uh, what observations they've made about the events tonight on the streets. I think we might just as well stop these wars of freedom. We, what are we doing fighting in Vietnam if you cannot freely express yourself in the streets of Chicago? Well, there was a revolution in Chicago. The police were rioting. They were beating up delegates to the Democratic Convention. 
and behaving like the pigs that they were known as. And I was against the pigs and said so. People in the United States uh, happen to believe that the United States policy is wrong in Vietnam and the Viet Cong are correct in wanting to organize their country in their own way politically. This happens to be pretty much the opinion of Western Europe and many other parts of the world. If it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that the point of the American democracy yeah. and some is you can express too. any some point of view you want. Nazi. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As, I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro-crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. I, Failing that, I would only let's say that we names. can't have... Now listen, you the right yeah. of the Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names. Stop you and in let's your get... goddamn face. Let's... And you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's... Oh, let the author of Myra Brackenridge I... go back to his pornography and stop making any illusions of Nazism I to somebody you who was to... infantry in the last war. You were not an infantry, Nazi. as a matter of fact. I was a second-rate infantry. You were distorting your own military record. Mr. Vidal, what happened at Sharon? Wasn't it a provocative act to pull down an American flag and put up a Viet Cong flag? even if you disagree with what the United States is doing? It is not a provocative act. You have every right in this country to, to take any position you want to take because we are guaranteed freedom of speech. We've just listened to a, so a rather certain certain acts, grotesque example. Now, let's not talk at the same time. Mr. Okay. Buckley. The historic debates between Gore and William Buckley at the Democratic Convention in Chicago ending very nearly in blows. It was one of the great imperishable examples of two public intellectuals finally getting serious airtime. What happened immediately after that broadcast? Because I knew Paul Newman was there stealing beer out of your trailer or something like that. Well, Paul denounced him in front of his son, Christopher, saying, what you've done is unspeakable tonight. You've talked about somebody's private life about which you know nothing. You think that is debate, that is political debate? Newman, when he got into a fury, was pretty exciting. And Buckley sort of backed away from him. And Paul just went after him. <laughs> and Paul realized he's got two of Buckley's beers in his hand and hasn't quite finished one of them. <coughs> so he pauses in the shadows of the cameras, finishes the beer, and we, we stalk off. That made his career, though, didn't it, Buckley? Of course. But, you know, these nobodies, what do you do? You associate yourself with people who really are famous. In 68, Gore comes out with Myra Breckenridge, which lands him on the cover of Time, Newsweek, Look, and Life. You've got a writer exploring things that you just don't see in any other American writer of the period. When I start an entirely invented book like Myra, I seldom start with anything more than a sentence that has taken possession of me. In this case, I am Myra Breckenridge, whom no, no man, man will ever possess. Who was she? I could only find out if I kept on writing. It was not until I was halfway through the story that I realized she had been a male who had changed his sex. What is normal? <laughs> well, it's what everyone does. 
I mean, it's what the majority of society does most. Myra Breckenridge, which was in many ways considered the worst film ever made, for which I often get credit, though I had nothing to do with it. And happy in being the most extraordinary woman in the world. <laughs> That's the ball game. Gore has taken risk after risk, and he's paid a big price for it. He's been persona non grata in the academic world for a very long time. I don't think they know what to make of Gore Vidal. Um, Gore has never fit into their narratives about what's going on in American fiction. Vidal is put over there in the realm of popular novelists. But if you take a novel like Duluth or Myra Breckenridge, these are very much postmodern novels. He's witty, he's sarcastic, he's opinionated. Would you welcome Mr. Gore Vidal? Gore became a television personality. He's a celebrity intellectual. He can do intellectual entertainment of a very high order. Growing up, I, I was aware that there was some kind of altercation between him and Norman Mailer and, you know, that all that pop culture stuff. Uh, we did a notorious television show one night, and it seemed that we, one way of saying it, may, maybe ganged up on poor Norman, who we know is an estimable writer and a man of worth. And, but had stopped, as he put it, as he admitted on the show, at a watering place on his way to the studio. Uh, do you have but happy memories of that night? Yeah. Surprise, though. Well, you seem to have me figured out as the, the next reincarnation for me is going to be Charles Manson. Well, you let yourself... Why don't you read what you wrote? You let me. yourself in for it. Are, are you ready to apologize? <clears throat> I would apologize if... Uh, if it hurts your feelings, of course I would. No, it hurts my sense of intellectual pollution. Well, I must say, as, I mean, uh, as an the, expert, you should know uh, about I that. would like to... <laughs> my row with Mailer was over women's liberation, over a book that he'd written called The Prison of Sex, and I took women's liberation, as it was then called, feminism, against what Mailer said. And he was very upset by what I had said about him, and I was very upset about what he had said about uh, women's liberation. So there's nothing personal there. I guarantee you I wouldn't hit any of the people here because they are smaller. In what ways? <laughs> I never thought he was crazy, but I always thought that he had a crazy act that he thought was going to just crush everybody else. He's the madman. He's going to come in, God knows. He's fury incarnate. Why don't you look at your question sheet and ask a question? Hey, can I talk to the audience for Why a don't you fold it five ways and put it where the moon don't shine? <laughs> Mailer and I had always been friends. It was my impression that he was jealous of me because I was more popular with the public. And that bothered him. I would ask him occasionally, why don't you cool it? You're never going to be me, and God knows I'm never going to be you, so what are you carrying on about? When he was living in the United States, it was too hectic for him. He was too close. He couldn't see what was going on. The noise was too loud. I have always liked the idea of being able to be the person who watches, who is outside, and yet that's why I live in Italy, and yet I write about America. 
I suppose if I lived in America, I'd write about Italy. But as it is, I see my own country with a sense of distance between me and it. And I think distance is uh, rather important if you're going to write and you're going to meditate upon uh, the state of the world. Gore was a very Europeanized American, of course. I remember he once said, um, I have a house in Italy and a house in Beverly Hills, so it could be said that I don't live in the United States at all. I used to say that Gore was like a Roman emperor in exile when he lived in Ravello. Aristocrats and artists, film stars and models, politicians and writers. And they like to hear his gossip about his contemporaries. For instance, Truman Capote and Norman Mailer. Truman Capote has spent most of his life trying to get into a world with some success that I have spent most of my life trying with some success to get out of. It's true. It makes it very This man has shared Vidal's life for 24 years. Howard Austin, friend, cook, social secretary. Howard was a vivacious, energetic guy. And Gore is fundamentally a shy person. And they couldn't have been nicer to us. From the very beginning, I mean, two strange, eccentric, you know, crazy Americans driving into town in a silver Jaguar with a little Australian terrier yapping, uh, wearing cowboy hats. I mean, they thought we were, well, they kind of loved it, you see. It was uh, pleasantly remote from the rest of the world. We both liked the landscape, and the fact that the Italians are very good at leaving you alone. It was a very peaceful, organized, very intellectual life. They were an old married couple, uh, in the best sense. I mean, I certainly saw a few arguments. They could get in a tangle, but not one that seemed to last very long. I think he really loved Gore in a way that no one else could, really. What was wonderful was how vulnerable Gore was around Howard. Well, you're asking, was it a sexual relationship? And of course it wasn't. I don't go in for that sort of thing. Friendship is one thing and sex is another. Sex is all over the place. A friendship is not very common. It's sex that destroys relationships. Either one or the other loses interest. And either one or the other wants something else. We had not taken a vow of celibacy. We were not involved with each other, that's all. Certainly, I'm devoted to promiscuity, and always have been. I believe the more you do, the better it is for you. I'm a great health nut, and sex is, I think, absolutely marvelous, uh, for the whole system tones you up. Well, I don't like the word love. It's like uh, patriotism. It's like the flag. It's the last refuge of scoundrels. When people start talking about what wonderful, warm, deep emotions they have, and they are loving people, I watch out. Somebody's going to steal something. And uh, the world at his feet. Everybody came to see Gore. Um, you know, whether you were a great ballet dancer or a politician or the wife of a politician or a young writer, aspiring writer, James Taylor would come and practice singing on his balcony. 
Goran Howard kind of had a policy at Ravello that uh, no children. Um, they made an exception for us. So we were a little nervous about going there because, uh, you know, we didn't want to upset the apple cart there. And, uh, but um, they made us feel so welcome there. And um, Gore says, uh, we're, we're going to have guests for dinner tomorrow night. I said, oh, cool, who? who? And he said, well, um, Bruce Springsteen and Sting and their wives are coming over. And I'm like, what? What? Gore had this uh, Olympian view across the Mediterranean. And... Uh, you know, when you're a god, you get to live in Olympus. So, yeah, I, I did want that house. I desired that house a great deal. It looks about the way it did when we arrived. Nothing was here. It was just a table and a chair, which is all writers really need. So that's all I had. I think the Atlantic Ocean, three, 4,000 miles distance, was probably a filter for him. Gore was able to hold up the mirror of art from the very great distance of Italy and examine America. The first book that I wrote on this old table uh, was Burr, and then everything after that has been written right here. The novel is the way you reflect the society around you, and it's the way, point by point, you come up with ideas about it. I don't write about victims so much as I write about the people who have power, who exert the power, and who put the power against other people. With the trilogy, the American trilogy of Burr, 1876, Washington, D.C., I am reflecting on the United States. What is this country? Uh, is it anything new under the sun? Is it just another empire? What on earth is it about? I think I'm probably not the only person who would say that their knowledge of the American Republic and its evolution, as he would say, from Republic to Empire, comes quite considerably from reading the, the shelf of novels. What I do is uh, take all the facts that I can get and then proceed to dramatize, and I go into people's minds, which is what a novelist must do, a historian must never do, and a biographer ought not to do. I think Byrd might be Gore's greatest novel. It's a brilliant portrait of 18th century America. The founding fathers were not interested in democracy. In fact, uh, in a country of three and a quarter million, which is what we were at the time of the separation from England, uh, only 700,000 people could vote, white males of property. So it's never been terribly uh, uh, democratic. George Washington was a famous general who never won a battle. He was our first millionaire, and he believed in property and the uh, dignity of those who held it, and he, they put together a constitution which would protect property for all time. No nonsense about democracy. I looked at my grandfather at breakfast, and I realized what a long time he had lived. He was born in 1870. One of his best friends was Robert Lincoln, son of Abraham Lincoln. And I said, I've got it all here. I mean, what on earth am I looking for subjects? He said, if I can preserve the Union by freeing all the slaves, I will. If I can preserve the Union by freeing some and not others, I will. If I can preserve the Union by freeing no slave, I will. It's one of those figures that everybody knows who he is, so they think they know who he is. And they don't. They just know a name. They just know uh, an idea. What he was, finally, in my view, 
was he created the United States as we know it. He created the nation state as we know it. All of the great myths of American history pass through Gore Vidal's fiction. Each of them is reinterpreted, often turned on its head, and Gore shows us this counter-narrative. Gore is someone who was always at war to save the Republic and defeat the Empire. His whole career as essayist, playwright, novelist, comes down to one thing, the terrible discrepancy between the possibilities put forward by the Founding Fathers and the actual results of what we got. There was something a bit heavy-footed about the way Gore did this. He was a master of the language who was very alive to nuance. The problem is whether you're open or not to a certain version of the conspiracy theory of history, or a conspiracy theory of history, one in particular. Well, in his writing and in his comments, Gore suggests to me the answer to that is yes. Writing on Pearl Harbor is the original clue. Here is the actual bombing of the mighty USS Arizona by Jap planes. Gore suggests that Franklin Roosevelt was in some way complicit in the Japanese attack. Now that's expressed by Gore in a number of essays, a number of interviews, and in one whole novel. We alone were successful as a nation. Europe was smashed to bits. Japan was an occupied province of the United States of America. And we let them know that. Mr. Truman delivers his message on the State of the Union. This is an age when unforeseen attack could come with unprecedented speed. We must be strong enough to defeat and thus forestall any such attack. Harry Truman puts in military conscription of every young man in the country, something that is practically unconstitutional and unheard of in peacetime when we're the masters of the world. I mean, this is the greatest con trick ever done. The Truman militarized the entire society. Everything, everybody. We became a national security state. And that changed everything. From then on, we were forever on the march to stop godless and atheistic communism from dominating the earth. So it was pursuit of empire, really, and that's the division in the country between those who believe in it and think it's a wonderful thing and those who regard it as uh, a menace. Does someone as sophisticated as you are submit himself to the conspiracy theory of history? No, no. I say they don't have to conspire because they all think alike. I mean, the, the president of General Motors and the president of Chase Manhattan Bank really are not going to disagree on much of anything. I mean, they react, nor will the editor of the New York Times disagree with them. They all tend to think quite alike. Otherwise, they would not be in those jobs. They hired the lawyer from Whittier. Seemed to be bright, and then he turned out to be a disaster. So then he gives them Ford, runs into a lot of things. <laughs> then they say, we've got to have somebody clean and pure, and preferably even twice born will do. <laughs> and then he shoots himself in the foot, you know, every day for four years. Now you can see real, there's desperation at the Chase Manhattan Bank. I mean, this is their country and they can't find anybody for this job. So they said, let, let, let's just get the best cue card reader we can find. And they did.
he was unusually sort of deft and acute critic of Reagan, and I was writing a, a lot of criticism of Reagan myself. So we had a lot of fun at Reagan's expense. The good news is the election is over. <laughs> the bad news, prepare yourself. Ronald Reagan's library just burned down. Both books were destroyed. <laughs> but the real horror, he had not finished coloring the second. <laughs> and the perverts and the liberals and the leftists and the communists coming out of the closets. It's time for God's people to come out of the closet and the churches and 39% of the American people believe in the death of Earth by nuclear fire and in rapture. Among the 39% is Ronald Reagan. I can only add to that, my friends, that I continue to look at the scriptures today for fulfillment and for guidance. Indeed, it is an incontrovertible fact that all the complex and horrendous questions confronting us at home and worldwide have their answer in that single book. My allies for 30, 40 years have been the Jewish intellectuals of New York, who are also liberal and the old partisan review for which I wrote, the New York Review of Books, which I do write for. With the invention of Israel, a great many of them have defected from the left and have gone to the far right. And they have made what I think I've called an unholy alliance with the anti-Semitic Jesus Christers, the television evangelicals. Let's talk about your new book. Well, the new book, Live from Golgotha, has been denounced by a bishop in Ireland, by an MP in England, and by the Vatican. It's a comedy. It's actually, it's NBC is having problems with the ratings, and they think if they can get a live crew, union crew, union crew, <laughs> back to Golgotha to do the crucifixion, this will save their ratings. They do this only to find that Shirley MacLaine has already channeled in. Islam, Judaism, Christianity, are the three great evils that have befallen the world. In the classical world, Greece and Rome, for intelligent people, you had philosophy, which is about as highbrow as you can get. The superstitious, you had local gods to whom they prayed and said prayers and took, took fairly seriously. But they weren't maniacs as they are today. was invited to come and do a profile of him for Vanity Fair in Ravello. And I'd been very lucky in having in common some magazines and some editors. I always thought I was the one step away from the great man. I've dared to review a couple of his collections of essays and memoirs, in fact. And once he kindly sent me a message saying he thought I'd come uncomfortably close in one of my judgments. I can remember very well the day when he called me in California. When I picked up the phone, and instead of saying Hitchipu or the other sort of affection, he said Delfino. It's the Italian word for Dauphin, in other words, for prince or king in waiting, as it were. I found him a very bright kid. I first knew him when he was about 20, 
England, new statesman. We both broke for it. So, well, I've decided, I've been thinking about it. People sometimes ask, you know, do I want to nominate a successor? Is there anyone I'd regard now as my equivalent? And um, he said, I've, I thought it should be you. When I was in my teens and early 20s, reading what he'd had to say about the false mystique of the Kennedy family, about the military-industrial complex, about his take on modern fiction. Like a lot of people in my generation, I felt I knew him in a strange way because he's one of those essayists who has the ability to make you feel personally addressed. The last forum where one mind can talk directly to another mind without being mediated either by television or by somebody else in, a print, in the print media. And I think there's still excitement there for me. I like to think of Gore in the same company with Mark Twain and Henry James in a strange way. He sort of sits between those two. On the one hand, he's the roughneck. He's, he's Mark Twain, the wit, the satirist, um, willing to stir things up, willing to, to cause a hell of a lot of trouble. But there's also the Henry James side, the shy man, the intellectual, who's willing to think about the class system in America and to study it in complicated ways. And if he sees a wound, he doesn't heal it, he jabs it. Anyone who wants to understand America during the last 50 years has to regorb it all. I mean, he really had a great shit detector, this guy. He really did. I don't know, you know, maybe it was hanging around the Senate as a kid or whatever it was. But, you know, and it came out in his speaking and his writing. He just, you know, was ruthless in, in exposing phonies. The lies which our poor people have been exposed to in my lifetime are just beyond anything that you think reasonable people could accept. But they did. And that, that is when I think I became instinctively a correctionist. I ran the first time only out of greed and vanity. These are the two things which drive my character. I'm unlike other people, as you know. <laughs> the second time, however, this spring, I ran out of terror. The United States is moving toward war. I think this administration is nuclear-minded. They believe that a nuclear war can be won, particularly by a large continental power like the United States. I think they're insane. I constantly get the question, is he serious? How come you're the only politician I ever heard of come to an unemployment office? Never saw that. Stick around. Corporations must pay tax. They're not speaking for you, and they aren't speaking for me, the representatives. They're speaking for Arco, for Mobile Oil, for Northrop, for Boeing, for all the people that sent them to Washington. They have been put there by the rich, and this is a country of the rich, for the rich, and by the rich. That you have a society that is constantly at war with everybody on earth, doesn't give a goddamn about the people who live in the society, doesn't give a goddamn about, about education. And that there is no real difference between Republican and Democratic candidates anywhere. What we have achieved in the United States is socialism for the rich and free enterprise for the poor. Isn't a little reversed? No. The rich are actually living off of the federal government in of the course. forms of contracts of and course. tax breaks and so on. Did you like that experience, the handshaking? Oh, yes. I love that. I, get, I like crowds. I have depths of insincerity as yet unplumbed. <laughs> There's nothing like a crowd to really inspire that in you. I'm a demagogue, I suppose. 
I was running Jerry Brown's Senate race in 1982 for the primary. I wanted to be in Gore's campaign because what he was saying is what I knew and what I believed and what I'd experienced. And I had run Jerry's, um, which was more cautious than Jerry had ever been. He was slowly turning into the politician that he hated. Mr. Brown is a corpse lying in my path. He's a political corpse. He will be buried by November. He will be defeated by any of the three Republicans. And there he lies in my way between now and June 8th. Gord would kind of take down Jerry as the politician, you know, that had bought into all of it, even though Jerry was, you know, by the most mainstream media seen as the outsider. It was very funny watching the two of them struggle through that. I don't know if I were Jerry Brown, I would take four years off. <laughs> You've got to have a character formed before you go into politics. So I would propose four years of just quiet reading and thinking, and then return in sort of Nixonian splendor and seize the prize. <laughs> It was a rowdy, uh, fun campaign. Jerry Brown won. They work it out at the end how much you spent for each vote that you got just to giggle about how, how stupid you were. I was out there on my own. I did not have anyone's advice. And I ended up with a half million votes without ever having spent more than three or $4,000. The race wasn't really for Gore to win. It was for him to be out there as, um, with a point of view and get as much attention as he could. I mean, it would have been awful had he won. I don't think he has a temperament that would have suited him to the kind of tedious work of a legislator. It's a pretty slogging career, uh, politics. I mean, you really have to love uh, people. He likes people, but I don't know how frustrated he was because I think deep, deep down, writing is his cause. I mean, that's it. In 1986, Vidal was invited to Moscow by President Gorbachev for the Glasnost Conference. He's the most impressive political figure I've ever seen in action. Ever seen in ever action? Ever seen in action. Why do you say that? What I liked about Gorbachev was the, um, the simplicity of it. Uh, he said, Chernobyl frightened us. Can you imagine an American president saying, well, Three Mile Island really gave me a scare? Gorbachev said, you know, if something like that could happen, that was a minor accident in a minor plant. Now suppose one of the missiles went off just by accident. So the fallout be 10,000 times that. He said, I want to see these things gone by the end of the century. They're too dangerous to have around. They're not tactically useful. And we all applauded. And Gorbachev, he was reading from a speech in a blue binder. He put down the binder. He said, you know, I expected warmer applause on that. So we all made a lot more noise. Well, that's better. And went on. He didn't sound like a politician for one minute, which means he's either the best politician in the world or maybe he means it.
much of my lifetime, the American media has been tightly controlled by a handful of corporations whose main task since 1945 was to terrify Americans into believing that the Russians were coming and so we needed ever more missiles and nuclear warheads and submarines. They have had decades to create a false reality for a citizenry largely uneducated by public schools that teach conformity with an occasional advanced degree in consumerism. What then is a true political party? Well, one that is based firmly in the interest of a class, be it workers or fox hunters. Officially, we have two parties which are in fact wings of a common party of property with two right wings. It was as if a prosperous, victorious nation, which we were, had been bitten by a werewolf, the werewolf of empire, and so became rabid, and then gone mad before our eyes to the horror of our friends and of considerable anxiety even to foes. We would come here for Christmas and stay at the Gritty. New Year's Eve was always here in Harry's Bar. I forget when I first came here, but it must have been 50 years ago. This is neutral ground. Think of all the people who hate each other who come here. (laughs) I sat here once with Truman Capote over there. I was getting ready to kill him. And I was here with a camera crew for the first time 20, 30 years ago. And, my God, I've done it again. Another camera crew. Thank you for inviting me to the most interesting meeting I've ever had with you were the architect of what looked like a new world for your country and gave an opportunity to our country to fit into this new universe as indeed it began to do with Reagan and then ceased to do with his successors. When they became the Soviet Union, they made a decision. So why change it? In the United States of America, Появилось своего рода вот такое впечатление, что они выиграли все, победу держали, заболели страшной болезнью, комплексом победителя. The sense of irreality is too powerful in the United States. И других многих встреч мы почувствовали, что с американцами у нас получается. Я уже вижу, что в самой Америке начинают понимать, что допустили ошибки, заблуждения в стратегических расчетах, и что это ставка на милитаризацию, новую милитаризацию страны, мало что даст. Это мы все проиграем, и Соединенные Штаты, и весь мир. Вы пессимист, я вижу, в этом отношении, да? I'm pessimistic for the time being, because, I, you know, whenever I want to know what the United States is up to, 
I look into my own black heart. We now assume that anything that happens in the world affects American interests. Well, practically nothing does. When Bush that speaks is, of a new is, world order, he speaks of the American empire. I thought he was more relevant, had more to say, was tougher in the last years of his life than at any other time. Well, you must remember that since 1945, we have fought about 30 wars, covert, overt, hot, cold, everywhere from Guatemala to Grenada to our great victories in Panama, not to mention Vietnam and Korea, where we noticeably lost. I think what we have done is uh, united the Muslim world totally against the United States in particular, and the white race, if we can call ourselves that, in general. By the year 2000, the white race will only be 18% of the world's population. We've made a lot of trouble for ourselves. And this is only the beginning. We will wish that we had not done this. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Mr. Vidal, you are an agent provocateur on this topic. Make your case, if you will, as to why the United States must take some of the blame for the horrendous state we're in now with regard to terrorism. You've mentioned already over 200 military strikes, and I didn't include the CIA with the Bay of Pigs and so on, against other countries generally without provocation. When you start doing things like that arbitrarily around the world, people get very grumpy at you. Right. And sooner or later, I thought, well, somebody, as it turned out, it was a Saudi Arabian struck at us. So I think that we had that coming to the extent that we had been provocative. Gore has been a remarkable, incisive critic of our invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, he's done yeoman's duty here in writing these pamphlets. For reasons that I leave to the higher psychiatry, Junior wanted a war in Iraq. Was it oil? Yes, of course it was. And so, and certainly uh, his boss, Cheney, did, but <laughs> at the same time, Junior is really pretty vague. I mean, you know, he just wanted to go bang, 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 bang. <laughs> we got to stand tall, you know? We can't cut and run. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. We've had bad presidents in the past, but we've never had a goddamn fool. Yeah. He was deeply offended by what happened after 9-11. Felt these people as simpletons. They had no respect for anything. And uh, knowledge, fact, history. And that the neocons were really an evil bunch. They use this catastrophe as a, for a coup d'etat. This is a well-thought-out coup d'etat. They already had contingency plans ready in case of terrorism, violence, whatever, which they had inherited from Clinton, who had put together some terrible legislation after Timothy McVeigh blew up the building in Oklahoma City. It was ready made for them to call an emergency and pretend it was wartime 
you know, the war on terrorism is a metaphor. And terrorism is an abstract noun. It's like a war on dandruff. There's no such thing, you know. It isn't war. It's just a slogan. But using the slogan, they got through the USA Patriot Act, which removes many of our liberties. Nobody made a sound when we lost habeas corpus, due process of law. And suddenly Bush managed to get rid of it. Where was a voice on television, aside from mine, that spoke out against this? Where are all those noble jurists, those great lawyers, those lovers of liberty? Where the hell were they? They were nowhere. Now we have a totalitarian government. And the totalitarian government wants to watch everybody, total surveillance of everyone. They listen to the telephone conversations. They look at your credit cards. They look where you travel. We are totally policed. This is contrary to everything in our Constitution. When I complain about the United States not being Athens, I certainly say we are a very good Roman Republic. And the lies are based upon the most advanced techniques of advertising, which is the only art form my country has ever created. The television commercial. And we sell soap and presidents in the same fashion. Once a country is habituated to liars, it takes generations to bring the truth back. I've never seen a period in which more people are just disconnected. Remember the lady in Florida with the mascara? Kathleen. Uh, yes. <laughs> she was also co-chair of the Bush-Cheney Republican campaign. Oh, yeah. While, while running the electoral machinery of the state of Florida. And then they did it again in 04. This last election, who's, who is the villain, according to Congressman Conyers? He's the Secretary of State of Ohio, J. Kenneth Blackwell. He was simultaneously co-chair of the Bush-Cheney campaign. That seems to smell of bullshit. Well, I must say it's overpowering whatever the scent. Conyers writes this book, one of the most distinguished men in Congress, with a great deal of effort and help and so on, just vote by vote, district by district across the state of Ohio. The New York Times would not review the book, would not mention the book. I know, I wrote the preface to it. Washington Post, ditto, they wouldn't do anything. Now, if the two self-loving uh, newspapers of choice in the United States are going to ignore the fact that a presidential the second one in a row has been stolen. We don't have a republic. There's nothing left. Think with, with a hearty hand clasp. Yeah. Are you living in New York now? I live in LA. In LA. Yeah. Nice weather. And, uh, my husband, Chris Matthews. I went to see the best man twice the last time I was in New York. Oh, really? In, in 2000, yeah. How's up? Well, isn't it scary? 
that nothing changed in 40 years? It hasn't. I thought I had to bring it up to date, and they said, no, it's working. Boy, have you ever had such fun in your life? Oh, yeah. Did you see um, Christopher Hitchens? No. He's here. Christopher Hitchens thought he could be the new Vidal and declared himself to be my dauphin, my heir. And I said, yeah, forget it. I said, I'm still in business and I shall be in business as long as you're alive. I said with a beady look. Well, how's the reverence? How's, how is the food? Yeah, I anoint the, the brown. Uh, Gore felt that Christopher was the young Gore. And then he felt that Christopher was trying too hard. And then he felt betrayed. He's had a sea change. So he is no, no longer my heir. For Gore, this was a real betrayal. You're joining the neocons, who I think are the enemy of the Republic. I had a big political disagreement with anyone who thought Saddam Hussein should stay as the private owner of Iraq. And I thought it was outrageous for him to say that he thought that the Bush administration was complicit in, had guilty knowledge in advance of, was an accomplice in the destruction of the World Trade Center. I never said that, because I don't believe that. Those who seem to think that the Bush administration uh, had something to do with 9-11, I, I can prove that they didn't. They are totally incompetent. 9-11 was a brilliantly executed uh, strike at the United States. I can't imagine anybody, I can't even, can you imagine Cheney mumbling around, uh, orchestrating something like that? Well, I've got you. No, no, no more tonight. No more tonight. If you leave it with me, I'll send it on, I promise. All right, Okay. I will. In fact, it's the last time I saw him. Who's older, you or me? When were you born? Uh, October 3rd, 25. I was June 1, 25. So, June I'm older. Yeah, June comes before it's October. Smarter, older. I know, I know. Old. It's a burden. One was Harriet Merrily. If you had known I was older, would you have come to me for advice? Uh. No, probably not, you know. There's always the worry about senility and <laughs> premature, you know, dementia. <laughs> when I first came here, Howard and I picked a plot and uh, some marble. Near the end, he asked me, how old am I? I told him he was 74. He frowned. He said, that's when people die, isn't it? I said that I hadn't, and so far he hadn't. Then he said, didn't it go by awfully fast? Of course it had. We had been too happy, and the gods cannot bear the happiness of mortals. And then he died, so... That was it. 
When Howard died, Gore was dark. I think the last eight years was so painful from that loss. That emptiness without Howard, that best friend. That I've entered what I call the Cedars Sinai years. This is when you have to go to the hospital from time to time. And I have a bad leg, and because of the bad leg, I no longer can walk the great distances that living here in Ravello requires. So I shall do less walking and uh, less view, I must say. I shall miss the look of this place, certainly. The death of Howard Austin meant that Gore could no longer live alone at La Rondinaya. So packing up is, um, I think, about as dreadful an experience as anyone can ever go through. I know many people who've had terminal heart attacks during it. Should I have one right here on camera, it will be very exciting. And um, historic. This is the money. In Florida, this is the money. This is where, in a close race, it is decided right here. And again, 20% statewide, but watch all this blue. And I'm going to go back four years ago. Remember, so you see blue over here in St. Pete. You see Orlando and in the central Florida area. Excuse me for stepping across. But we're going to go back in time now to four years ago. Remember all that blue? Uh, the polls are about to close in the District of Columbia. This is my prediction. The Republican Party, as of this day, is as terminated as the Whigs were in 1846. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. I would like to think of him as completely virtuous. I suspect he's not. Why do I suspect that? Because I know how politics works. If you need $10 million, more than what you've already raised to become the next president, you're going to get 10 million. 
And heaven knows what you're going to give away. Nothing as gross as Dr. Cheney's Halliburton. But they'd get something out of it. So they made up to him. Well, that just didn't happen because people liked the cut of his jib. It was not his jib that got them. Americans are farcical when faced with force majeure and money. Two things that they worship. You can't expect a democracy from a society like this. It is the United States of amnesia. Uh, we miraculously forget everything. So the lessons that we should be learning, we probably will have forgotten in no time at all. Pericles said something quite wise to the Athenians. An empire once acquired is very dangerous to let go. There's a lot of repair work that we're going to need if we get the Republic back. That's the big question. Somebody asked Confucius once, one of his students, they said, what happens, Master Kung, which is his real name, when we die? He said, why do you ask about something we know nothing about uh, when you won't even ask about life, which we do have to deal with? He was not going to answer that question because there was none. What do you think your legacy will be? I think the most useful and creative people in the United States from the very beginning is the men who have said no. And many men have begun to say no again, and when the chorus gets loud enough, the people march. I hope you're tight on that.